uh, we, we don't acknowledge that there will be meltdowns in the future. Uh, we perhaps uh, naively, I don't think so, uh, have faith that uh, human society can learn and perfect itself in terms of uh, reliability and responsibility. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. The scientific consensus on anthropogenic climate change is clear. The IPCC has given humanity an aggressive timeline to mitigate the worst damage. The question about what we should do in response to the crisis remains a contentious issue. To achieve net zero CO2 emissions requires that we aggressively pursue our most potent sources of clean energy. The IPCC pathways to net zero recognize the need for a significant nuclear contribution. However, a plucky group of renewable energy NGOs led by Stanford professor Mark Jacobson have put forth a daring roadmap to not only eliminate fossil fuels, but to do it with one hand tied behind our backs. They propose a complex and daring venture to eliminate both fossil fuels and nuclear power in one fell swoop of building intensity. My guests on this podcast are co-authors of Roadmap to Nowhere, a detailed dissection of Mark Jacobson's argument put forward in his 50-state roadmap to 2050, which is all about uh, replacing fossil fuels with only renewable energy sources. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and feel free to share this episode with your friends. Mike Conley is a writer of fiction and nonfiction living in Los Angeles, a lifelong nerd. He's been interested in nuclear issues since 2010. Mike, welcome to The Rational View. Hi. Tim Maloney is a retired community college professor of electronics and machine control, an author and inventor. Tim, welcome to The Rational View. Hello. Well, it's really an honor to have you both here. I've uh, read your blog, Roadmap to Nowhere, and uh, really impressed. I've used some of the arguments myself in rebutting um, many of the claims of the 100% renewable crowd. Could you maybe give us a bit of an introduction about what your work, Roadmap to Nowhere, entails? Oh, sure. Well, what happened was Jakesman came out with this plan to run the entire country without fuel. Uh, one thing that um, a lot of people might not fully appreciate is that renewable energy is not free fuel. It's fuel free. Wind and, so wind and sunshine are not fuels. They are ambient natural phenomenon that we can harvest for energy if we're in the right place at the right time. So his idea is to run the entire country without fuel, but with a, um, a network of energy harvesting systems, that is large wind and solar farms, that would have to be fully interconnected so they can back each other up in lieu of a fueled power plant to do that job. Wow. That's probably the best way I can encapsulate it. Um, Tim, what's your take on it? Uh, yeah, well, Mike um, uh, conjured, invented the notion of 
uh, fuel-free uh, as a descriptor for renewables, um, wind and solar, to emphasize, underscore the fact that when you've got fuel, you've got energy available on demand because the fuel contains potential energy and all we have to do is ask for it. Flip the on switch and away we go. Okay. And of course, wind and solar do not satisfy that descriptor. So they, they are a fuel-free energy gathering uh, scheme uh, to be um, contrasted with real fuel. Which, by the way, nuclear does constitute real fuel. This stuff is sitting there. It's ready to fission. All we have to do is flip the on switch and we can uh, light up the electric grid. Yeah, okay, that's a, a very good introduction. So maybe let's get get to know you guys a little bit and you could each give me a little bit about your background and maybe how you came to, to work together on this. Uh, Mike, what, what, where do you come from? What's, what's your background in this? I, I'm I'm just I'm just a voracious reader of um, science fiction and fiction and science, and um, the um, problems with global warming and energy supplies have concerned me since the late '90s. There was that article, "The End of Cheap Oil," I believe, uh, Scientific American. I think it was in 1998, and it really made an impact on me. And um, actually, I went into a, a, a couple years depression over the idea that we didn't have enough power to run the planet. And um, then I took a fresh look at nuclear energy and realized that we don't have enough petroleum <clears throat> to run the planet without killing ourselves in the process. But we certainly have enough energy to run the planet cleanly with something like nuclear power. So I started studying up on it and studying up on it and meeting a bunch of scientists, picking their brains and uh, becoming friends with some of them. And uh, I was just bound and determined to understand this and then convey it in simple terms to the world at large. What I basically said to the scientists I met was explain it to me and I'll explain it to the world. And the way I got hooked up with Tim is um, I think for our, our mutual friend, Stephen Boyd, the physicist who um, I think Stephen made some compliments online about something that Tim wrote. And then I read what he wrote and then I edited it and sent it to Tim and he was duly impressed. And I, I think that's how it started. Wasn't it, Tim? I think so. Yeah. Um, I met Stephen before I met you. That is certainly the case. And Stephen and I participated in a um, discussion session at the, dare I say, the Left Forum Conference in New York City in about 2012, maybe. That's how I met Stephen. And then I, I met you through Stephen, I'm sure. Okay. We, we, I put together a discussion conference to try to crack through the leftist uh, resistance to the idea of powering society with nuclear fission. And, of course, that's a problem that we uh, continue to live with. We can't convince – I can't convince my fellow leftists that if we want to drive the fossil fuel people out of business, the way to do it is to beat them on price and reliability through nuclear fission. Um, and I'm, I'm still <laughs> working at getting that point across. Yeah, you know, the, the irony about the left, you know, I'm a centrist myself. I call myself an Eisenhower Democrat, if anybody's interested. But mm -hmm. the thing that the left seems to have grasped onto is equating nuclear energy with nuclear war, number one, which is a falsehood. But also there's something even deeper than that. It's almost like a big, giganto 
nuclear high-tech reactor is almost a symbol of the massive industrialization that is ruining the planet, so we have to turn away from it and get back to nature. And the irony of it is, is that um, Westinghouse and GE, they make wind turbines and they make nuclear reactors. So, I mean, you know, they, they want to turn away from big, from, uh, big industry. They'd have to turn away from uh, wind turbines as well. So, I, you know, I quite honestly don't get the rationale behind the left's objection to nuclear power unless maybe it's just because right the right happens to like it so we have to not like it kind of a tribalism thing yeah. I, I, i'm mystified yeah it seems to me like it's the ideal nonpartisan issue that could solve a lot of the troubles that we have there's no reason that the left and the right can't come together to both support uh, an energy solution. There doesn't need to be a, a politics behind an energy solution in my mind, but Jacobson, Mark Jacobson has come forward as, as the, as the prophet of, of renewable energy of a hundred percent renewable energy. And he's, he's basically worshiped by the environmental left in preparation for this, I was looking for, you know, references to Jacobson. And I, I found an article by Stacy Clark was writing for Renewable Energy World. She wrote, uh, quote, decidedly impartial review of Mark Jacobson's 2021 book, 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everything. And in this article, Ms. Clark breathlessly gushes over Jacobson as an athletic, brainy, competitive tennis player whose life seems like a well-written movie script. And she goes on, Like Darwin's early journals, the 2009 report was attacked as a folly by entrenched businesses, leaders, and scientists for hire. Mike and Tim, how much were you paid to put together Roadmap for Nowhere? <laughs> I'm still waiting for the check. Tim, did you get yours? Well, in my case, uh, it was a, a big fat zero. Yeah, boy, I think it got hung up in the mail with my George Soros check. You know, when I snuck all those Mexicans over the border to vote for Hillary in California, uh, I they never got their check either, and they're really pissed off. So, you know, maybe it got lost with that. <laughs> The the looking at the the blogosphere or the the internet review of this stuff and it's decidedly negative the reviews that you see when you search up uh, Jacobson's roadmap except for the NGOs. Um, I looked at a site called Interesting Engineering. It calls the study one of the most debatable renewable energy studies of our times. <laughs> they were cautiously optimistic in their review, claiming, yes, it is possible, but with great risk. Every nation must understand the need for such clean energy sources and join hands to work together towards our sustainable future. So you guys are not quite so positive on Jacobson. What, what are the main issues with Jacobson's thesis? Why does it not work in your estimation? Well... The way I look at it, and I think Tim would agree with me since we wrote the book together, is that Jacobson, renewable energy is intermittent. Therefore, you either need a lot of storage or a lot of backup power or both. Jacobson's plan has a total of 12 hours of storage. And then they it says in the plan, and this is a quote, that it assumes perfect transmission. Okay. The transmission 
corridors necessary to have a wind farm in Vermont balance out a solar farm in Arizona will require a national network of high voltage direct current transmission uh, in parallel with and separate from our grid. Where you, um, So if production is flagging at one coast, something happening on the other coast can ship energy over to its confederate, you know, if you will. So if you have a network of wind and solar farms supporting each other, they have to be connected to do so. And his plan simply leaves that connection to others by saying that the plan assumes perfect transmission. That assumption is about $3 trillion worth of long distance wiring. And Tim's the one that did the math on that. Yeah, we keep revising our dollar figures. Most recent calculation says right here, $2.9 trillion for expanded transmission lines, which isn't a deal breaker. I mean, it's just a lot of money, but sure, sure. Uh, it, it, we, we seldom get a proper exposure, a discussion of that idea that we are in for a big transmission construction uh, effort here. And all the attendant legal problems, eminent domain problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that transmission, the extra transmission wouldn't be necessary with nuclear power. What you would need with nuclear power is to simply do what we're going to have to do no matter what we use is upgrade the existing grid, mm -hmm. which is distinctly different from uh, to go back to my sample. You have a solar farm in Arizona that the grid is depending on exporting X amount of megawatts in a can because it's a cloudy day that nobody expects. And so a uh, wind or solar power from another part of the country is, is shipped to that farm so it can then export what it's supposed to. So there's sort of like this whole backup system that Jacobson has to have for his plan to work. Hmm. And it's not accounted for in the plan. Well, here's the thing. I mean, if you have a bunch of intermittent, uh, intermittent energy gathering systems, you either need a, a bunch of backup or a bunch of storage or both. And he doesn't only has 12 hour storage. So he has to have universal backup, which means every large wind and solar farm in the nation would have to be connected to every other one so they can share power or shuffle power or balance power or however you want to couch it. They can fill in for someone that's having a cloudy day or a lull in the wind, you know, or weird things like the sun going down. You know, that's it keeps happening. You know, it's really weird. And that's the fatal flaw, as Mike and I see it. We're not complaining so much about the $2.9 trillion. What's $2.9 trillion in, in this grand scheme of a $20 trillion GDP, whatever it is these days? Uh, we just don't think it'll work. We don't think it's possible to make uh, that connectivity uh, function properly, such that you can really rely on getting some wind from Vermont when the sun goes down uh, in, in, in somewhere else. Now, based on what I've read, uh, Jacobson says he's modeled all of this. He's got a five-year running model of this grid uh, at five-minute intervals showing that it's feasible. Is that – you take issue with something that he's done there? Or has he made some poor assumptions or – We take huge issue with it. We think his assumptions are not defensible. Uh, Mike and I are not expert enough to really have an opinion on those, I think it's 30-second intervals. And by the way, those intervals are over a three-year period, 
uh, in the years 20, 50, 51, and 52, I believe, or it's 2049, 50, 51. It's way into the future. And the very notion, the, the hubris of thinking that any uh, uh, modeling uh, set of assumptions and equations can estimate whether conditions at 30 second, I believe it's 30 second intervals in the year 2050 is, is not reasonable in our minds. We, we don't think that's possible. Sure. That's, it's, a, it's a long stretch. His model um, took historical weather patterns uh, from what we can determine. He took a patch of historical weather patterns to see if his model could run through it or its weather patterns, historical weather patterns that were then um, um, some global warming factor was added to that. But long story short, he is assuming that he can predict weather in mid-century. And what we say is you can't predict weather in mid-century to a well enough degree or a high enough degree to accurately predict how much wind and solar you're going to need and where it should be located. The perfect example of that, the recent one, is the Texas freeze. Nobody saw that coming and we were looking at it when it happened. Mm-hmm. And it lasted for what, like a week? And so how can you predict a black swan event like that? Sure, sure. But I mean, I, I now I haven't looked close enough at what he's done, but I'm, I presume he must be using some sort of a worst case scenario to, to test his system. He has a, um, a modeling uh, device with his access to supercomputers out at Stanford University. Of course, he's got the best the world has to offer in computation power. And I forget the, uh, the name of his modeling program. Uh, we discussed it a lot, Mike, but since we've been working on the other project for the last two years, now it's not on tip my tongue. Oh, well, the, the, the short name would be called GatorCom. Um, uh, these are, it's an acronym. It's an incredibly long name, and uh, it's easily remembered by his ga- uh, acronym GatorCom. Um, don't ask why. Um, but the, the entire premise of modeling mid-century weather is – on its face, grossly inefficient for deciding where to place tens of trillions of dollars of equipment and hoping or expecting or presuming that that is A, the sweet spot for that equipment and B, will be the sweet spot for that equipment for several decades in the future. And let us repeat that we're not complaining about the money. Money is nothing. That, that, that we, our, our complaint, our objection to the plan is we don't think it'll work. Furthermore, there's a more fundamental physics objection to, to uh, Jacobson's um, proposal for the 30-second interval accessing the weather, wind, and solar conditions in the year 2050. It's been raised by Christopher Clack, who really is a climate expert, unlike Mike and me, who has pointed out that Jacobson is assuming an unreasonably large grid size. I think it's 200 miles by 200 miles or maybe 200 kilometers. uh, 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 Grid segments across the U.S. And I think Clack's objection to that is it's too large. You can't expect that the conditions either solar or wind throughout a, a, a land area that great will be uniform throughout that that, that area. That mm. That is something to do with Christopher Clack's objection to uh, Jacobson's method, methodology. Not that, not, 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 not that Mike and I are competent to make a judgment of that. We're just repeating what Clack says. Right. And so Clack uh, was the head of a group of 21 experts who posted a scathing critique 
of Jacobson's analysis in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, in response to that, uh, rather than responding to the literature, I believe Jacobson uh, sued him for libel for $10 million. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> but it has a happy ending. Jacobson ended up paying Clack's legal fees. So I'm, I'm very happy with the way that turned out. Have some trust in the legal system after all. <laughs> It was, it was it was just shameful. Yeah, shameful. no, that, that's that's it's quite surprising that someone would do that if if they trusted what they were saying. I've seen other people co complaining that Jacobson's responses to critics are flippant and aggressive. Mm -hmm. On on Twitter, I I saw him posting. Jacobson posted uh, in response to a, a question for information on his model. He posted. I don't pay attention to non-experts, especially if they've worked at a nuclear advocacy org, BTI, where they must criticize other solutions. Yeah. On the other hand, I have communicated with Jacobson three times by email and once face-to-face, -face, and he's always been the, 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 the model of pol uh, uh, politeness and consideration. Yeah, but you didn't attack him. He's excellent in this But you didn't attack him, and I think when you overly criticize him, he just blows you off. But I can't wait for... Uh, I can't wait for the uh, the revision of the books to come out because I want to mail him a copy. <laughs> so this model that he's put together works in 2050. He's looking at three years in 2050. Does, is this when he finally shuts down the the fossil fuels, or or is it a gradual thing, or did you know, is this network that he's building up supposed to slowly offload fossil fuels, and then 2050 is when we completely uh, eliminate baseload? Yeah, that 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 mid-century window of weather modeling is just and only renewables with no fossil fuel or nuclear at all. It's it it, it purports to show that a self-supporting renewables-only grid can function during mid-century weather. Where he got that weather. Uh, I, I don't know. We read his plan twice and I didn't see any details about where he got that weather. The question I would have is, OK, what if it was today? What if you're using today's weather? Does it work uh, if you had this grid in place today? Well, he 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 would probably say that it would. Um, but my answer is Texas freeze. As I said, the meteorologists in this in this country watched in real time and could not predict the depth and length and breadth of the Texas freeze. In 2019, meteorologists were watching those hurricanes, and we didn't see that darn thing turn north and go up toward Texas until the last 24 hours, and it surprised everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, so weather prediction, weather prediction for running a weather dependent energy system is an exercise in foolishness. So this this system relies on accurate prediction of weather everywhere uh, to make itself balance. Indeed, it does. Even in that three year period of projection, there are some close calls uh, by Jacobson's supercomputer calculated results in which we just barely squeak through. And the only way we do squeak through is by having all the hydroelectric dams full and ready to rip. And all that generation capacity has got to be available to get Jacobson through through his several really close calls. But, but the point is, Jacobson acknowledges it's going to be tough. I've heard 
it's said that his assumptions on hydroelectric capacity are orders of magnitude out from what is feasible. Yeah, that's what Clack criticized him on, and he's not using the same approach this time around. Um, his earlier idea was to beef up our existing dams with more turbo generators, so when he needs them as a last resort battery, it would they would all turn on with an oomph to get us through a bad patch of weather. And um, I think Clack pointed out that the amount of energy that Jacobson wanted was the equal to the flow of 100 Mississippi rivers, something like 13,000 gigawatts. Wasn't it something like that, Tim? It was ridiculously huge. Yeah, it was huge. It, it was, was it 100 Mississippi rivers? It was some large multiple of Mississippi rivers. I thought it was 10 yeah, Mississippi it, it, rivers. Yeah, it's, a, it's some fantastically stupid thing. Um, One Mississippi, two Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, like try 100 Mississippis. His plan now is he's, he's reduced the overall um, prophesied demand for electricity in mid-century by about 25 percent um, by um, a sweeping proposal in his plan that would mandate using heat pumps and other non-electric storage, uh, storage and energy gathering systems um, for non-electric space heating, heating and cooling, basically a heat pump for every uh, a heat pump in every pot, you know, and a solar panel in every garage roof. But the idea being is that um, by lowering his grid to 939 gigawatts, he did that with it with mandating um, um, non-electric uh, sources for uh, space heating. And still using the dams as a backup, although not with all the extra turbo generators he had earlier thought it, he could in retrofit into the dams. But the dams are still considered a last get. He's requisitioning every single hydroelectric dam in the USA to serve in that function. He says it's all got to be available to him to draw on when he needs it. And even then, it's a close uh, call to get through the, the toughest uh, uh, days in that uh, three-year period. And this is assuming perfect transmission from across the country. Well, there you go. And that's what he's, I mean, the plan actually says we assume perfect transmission. And that is as far as the plan goes into explaining or solving how to connect all these wind and solar farms together. And he has more than 50,000 large wind and solar farms in his plan, plus several large rooftop solar installations. And so if you need to have these things back each other up, you have to wire them together. So yeah, if you composite perfect battery storage and perfect transmission, a lot of more, a lot more things become possible. Um, well, sure. That's quite interesting. Let's look a little bit at the justification that he offers. He gives a, a cost benefit analysis whereby the external costs of coal, natural gas, and oil uh, that we're burning now far exceed the investment costs for his system uh, for wind and solar. And external costs include everything from, from premature deaths due to air pollution to the skyrocketing insurance costs for properties vulnerable to sea level rise. This seems like a reasonable approach, uh, showing that the, the, the solution is cheaper than the, the disease. 
Is, is this true, do you think? Well, it is a reasonable approach, except, except in this debate that we're having between him and nuclear, the same exact, exact same thing applies to nuclear. And so what he's actually doing is he's spelling out that when you go to carbon-free energy, you're going to make a lot of savings. But that's a wash as far as our debate is concerned, because the same amount will be saved by switching to all nuclear. So it isn't like, well, he has this advantage because he added all this stuff up. We're just like, well, yeah, thanks for adding it up. Um, we can save the same thing by switching to nuclear energy. So what's your what's your point? Mm -hmm. We admire Jacobson's work in that in that area. We admire the fact that he has really tried to levelize, express the levelized cost of fossil fuels. He, he's mm -hmm. he's doing a huge uh, service to society by doing that. Indeed. That's something that's not um not high on a lot of people's uh, agendas. It's, it seems to be a double standard in place and, and coal and oil are, are allowed to, you know, kill millions of people at, at their leisure without being questioned on it, it seems, and spew their waste products into the environment. And the costs of these uh, things on society are just not at all recognized by the governments and the people that are putting these governments into power, I think. So that's definitely an important thing uh, that's you know, good for anyone who wants to try to save the environment from the climate change that we're uh, implementing right now. Yeah, well, you know, by the same token that what he is saying, like, OK, we're going to save all this or the cost is going to be largely defrayed by the savings and health and all this other stuff. Well, we can say the same thing about nuclear. And in fact, we should make a point of uh, Tim. We should make a point in the revision. Uh, of showing what kind of savings he expects and then just point out that that savings can be applied to, um, you know, defraying the cost of a nuclear grid as well. Quite right. Now, a lot of people uh, on the renewables only camp will say that nuclear is even more expensive. Nuclear is so expensive. Um, have you looked at the comparison between uh, say a nuclear build out versus this, this build out? I mean, Shouldn't, shouldn't we expect the renewables to be cheaper? Not at all. We, um, like, not at all. What we did is we took, we viewed his grid running for 80 years because that's the life of a reactor. And so the only, make, only way to make an apples and apples comparison with the nuclear grid or renewables grid is, well, the renewables grid, we're going to have to run it for 80 years because that's how long a reactor is going to last. And so when you look at his grid over the course of 80 years, he's just touting initial installation and being defrayed by health benefits. He's not factoring in. Um, land leasing, production costs, panel and blade replacement costs. This is just the initial capital? Uh, just just the initial install. Seven seven point eight trillion dollars is the projected initial construction cost for Jacobson's twenty nineteen plant. Seven point eight trillion. Okay. Uh, we we think we can do that. We can do the equivalent um, construction using the costs that have come into uh, publication in the last couple of years in Asia. Uh, we can do uh, our construction for only $2.8 trillion. That's where the big discrepancy in pricing uh, uh, opinion and estimates, estimates uh, come in, Al. Um, people in the U.S. always point to the 
uh, klutzy uh, rollouts that we have experienced in the last few decades here in the U.S. Uh, Mike and I are referring to what they've been able to do in uh, China and uh, South Korea and United Arab Emirates uh, under under the uh, auspices of the South Koreans and uh, using their prices converted to dollars on the uh, open exchange on the international exchange markets. We think we can do it for a lot less than Jacobson seven point eight trillion. Is that um, significantly cheaper due to um, different costs of labor? No, it's not. Nobody can seem to agree on that. We don't think it's only labor. We think it's um, uh, management skill and uh, up and running supply chains. Uh, they, they don't have the screw ups that we seem to be unable to avoid. Construction costs in South Korea are not significantly cheaper than America. The difference that the South Koreans and the Chinese that have the same costs as the South Koreans has to do with the fact that they're building the same reactor over and over again with a robust supply chain and experienced crews. The reactors being built in this country for the last, what, couple, what since the 80s have been pretty much like one-off hand-built hypercars with design changes in the middle of construction. Even so, if, if you take the worst price at Vogel, which is like 9000 in an installed kilowatt hour, something like that, right? Per, per kilowatt, $9,000 per installed kilowatt of capacity. Even with that price, our grid would still be $5 trillion cheaper than Jacobson's grid factored over the 80-year lifespan because of the amount of money he has to spend that he doesn't add into his thicker price for the um, high-voltage national grid to connect everything together, for the land fees, for the leasing, uh, for the leasing, land leasing fees, for the production fees, which means, hey, if you rent my land and you make a gigawatt of energy on that land, you got to pay me X amount of dollars. That's a production fee. And the Bureau of Land Management has land fees and production fees that they can't undercut the, the uh, private landowners and, and the private landowners can't uh, undercut. Um, they want the BLM to raise the prices because they're too low. And so the thing that wind and solar people never talk about is, OK, if you need 40,000 square miles to put all your stuff on, how much is it going to cost to rent that land? How much is it going to cost to make a deal to get that land over a long term and the production fees? And then if the climate changes, you got to go get another patch of land. Another thing is, what if one of the states that are in the program goes nuclear and doesn't want to play the wind and solar game anymore? You got to replace all those wind and solar farms and the long distance that goes to it. And so if you have a buy-in from several states to play this game, they got to stay bought in. Because the thing about his plan, it is a nationally interdependent system, like a cat's cradle. It's all wired together. So it's interdependent, not independent. And it is weather-dependent, not weather-independent. We have calculated the land rental and fees over the 80-year uh, expected lifetime of our nuclear reactors and therefore the 80-year pricing 
uh, time duration for Jacobson, we come up with $1.1 trillion in land rental and fees. But to repeat for the umpteenth time, that's the least of our objections. We don't care about an extra $1.1 trillion. I wanted to mention, though, Al, that the reason we're using the 80-year expected lifetime is that the recent uh, uh, reactors that have come online in Asia have a licensed uh, 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 anticipation uh, operating lifetime of 60 years with the possibility of a 20-year extension. So we're picking up on Asian practice and saying, let it be 80 years eventually worldwide. Well, I mean, we're, we're at that point now with uh, with Generation 2 reactors in the U.S. Yeah. Several of them have been licensed to 80 years. So it's not unrealistic and, in fact, is probably quite conservative. If, if we were to do our entire nuclear grid for 80 years with operation maintenance and fuel and all Generation 3 reactors that are approved for build in the U.S., it, our grid would cost about 16 to 17 trillion. His grid is about 28 and a half. If we were to take the high price of the Vocal project, we, which people point to as like, oh, Riet, nuclear is too expensive. Look at what this costs. Even at the price of Vogel, over 80 years, our grid would still be over $5 trillion less money than his grid. And we're going to have all the numbers in the book and people can whip out their calculators and play with it all day long. And if we made a mistake. We want to hear about it. But from the way we're adding this up, his grid, when you include the wiring, when you include blade and panel replacement, when you include land and production fees and operating and maintenance, comes out to $28.5 trillion. So it's a lot more than his initial install price. Wow. That's significant. It's hugely significant. And so what it comes down to is the wind and solar folks are going to have to explain to the American people why we should spend between five and ten trillion more dollars to run the country because some people are afraid of nuclear power, which has killed what in America, what, 16 people in 60 years? And ten of them were ten of them were construction accidents that were completely unrelated to uh, radiation. None of them are related to radiation, not a single death. That's true. I guess a lot of them would argue that if you ramp up nuclear, then the odds of having another uh, Chernobyl or another uh, horrible release of radiation that uh, could significantly affect large swaths of land and be very expensive to clean up would be much higher. So if, if that's the case, then what's the cost of that? And if you look at the cost of cleaning up Chernobyl or cleaning up Chernobyl or Fukushima, um, they're quite high, right? Hundreds of billions of dollars in Fukushima. Well, for one thing, bringing up Chernobyl is a straw as a straw man because no one is ever going to build a reactor like that again. I mean, it's like like we say in the book, it's like bringing up the 1972 71 Pinto as an example of how all cars are horrifically dangerous. <laughs> No, really, it is. It's that silly. The Chernobyl reactor will never, ever, 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 as in never, did I say never enough, be built by any company again in the future of mankind because it was a bad design. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, yeah, it killed 59 people and dusted a bunch of areas. Okay, great. Fukushima had three meltdowns and nobody died from radiation. That shows how safe nuclear power is. What if three airplanes crashed because of a huge storm and nobody died? Would people say, oh, my God, airplanes are dangerous? They would, they would say, no, oh, my God, look how safe they are. That's wow. That's incredible. That is very, very true. Um, 
and and but if we're, we're trying to to look at costs here right we're trying to look at the balance of costs and let's let's posit that uh, we have a huge tsunami on the coast or rising sea level engulfs uh, a nuclear reactor and it has a meltdown. So what what does that do to the cost balances of of the of your your scenario versus Jacobson's scenario? Is it still are we still winning by going nuclear? I would say yes, but what do you say, Tim? We we have never pursued that line of inquiry. Uh, we, we don't acknowledge that there will be meltdowns in the future. Uh, we perhaps uh, naively, I don't think so, uh, have faith that uh, human society can learn and perfect itself in terms of uh, reliability and responsibility. So, so we do not take that into account. Well, a couple of things is Fuku the Fukushima cleanup has been way overdone by the Japanese government. A good example is the soil removal. They won't let the farmers move back until it's one millisievert above background radiation. Those farmers can move to Denver and get three millisieverts raised in their background levels. So it's an exercise in scrupulous perfection that has nothing to do with science. Yeah, they're they're probably trying to get better than it was before. Um, and yeah, as I I've looked into this as well, the the fact that you have you know background levels in Denver, as you say, are are, are three millisieverts, uh, are much higher than in most of Fukushima, just due to the granite and the radon coming out of the ground, um, or the cosmic rays uh, of the higher elevation. So the cost argument from Fukushima is is not uh, a good one. I think the the cost impacts of the cleanup uh, probably could be on the order of um, you know ten billion dollars, uh, ten to twenty billion dollars without that additional uh, need for um, removing all of the soil and and the damage, the environmental damage that you do by doing that is is actually worse than if you just ignored it. Well, also the social costs and financial costs, those people, there's 600 suicides of a direct, as a direct consequence of being displaced from their farms, lands, home, and businesses for this, for this uber-scrupulous uh, standard that makes no scientific sense whatsoever is particularly tragic in light of the fact that it was the Japanese survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki whose health was studied for decades after the bombings that showed that 100 millisieverts per year or less is not a cause for alarm or evacuation or concern. And that was proven in Japan itself on Japan's own citizens, a study that was jointly done by Japan and America for, what, 50-something years? Mm -hmm. They studied these people. Mm -hmm. Their offspring have no genetic damage. And by the way, the offspring of the liquidators of Chernobyl have no genetic damage. So, you know, I mean, that was a perfect but horrific biological experiment on living humans and the result was very clear that 100 millisieverts or less is no big damn deal at all and they're trying to get it down to one millisievert it's it's nuts and that's acute dose that's 100 millisieverts of acute yes. dose yes yes let us recommend to all listeners the uh, japan lifespan study 
often abbreviated, uh, acronymed LSS, from 1948 through 2006, I believe it was, uh, pay special attention to Table 3. That's the table we're referring to, Al, that indicates that an exposure of less than 100 millisieverts virtually instantaneously has no health effects. And so what Japan is doing is they're expanding the use of coal. And one study pointed out that just six years since Fukushima, the coal that Japan and Germany went to have caused at least 28,000 premature deaths due to air pollution. I have heard that. I've, I've actually used that meme. And what does that cost? The, the costs and the real tragedy of Fukushima was the radiophobia and the effects on the people of, of the evacuation and the, and the environmental damage that's been caused by trying to clean up something that didn't need to be cleaned up. You know, and some of the most and the best agricultural land in, in, in Japan. That soil has been cultivated for probably 800 years, if not longer, you know, carefully cultivated. And they're, they're ripping it up because of a millisievert. It's sick. We know that they're not carting the soil away. They're keeping it more or less in the neighborhood. So with luck, we'll be able to put that soil back in a few years when everybody gets calmed down. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a frightening thing psychologically for the inhabitants of Fukushima as well to see these great big bags of soil, uh, you know, supposedly radioactive and dangerous sitting beside the road as they drive by all the time. You know, oh my God, what's, what's happening? This is horrible. And, you know, it's leaking. Ah, should I run away? Well, see, that's the thing. It is radioactive, but the thing is, is it's not dangerous, you know, because the, the world has been miseducated for the last 50 or 70 years, actually, about the, the false idea that there is no safe dose of radiation. It's underlying all of this. The insistence on purity in the light of that false information is costing millions, billions, if not trillions of dollars over the years. So I think we've done a, a good job of going over this roadmap uh, of Jacobson's and, and your roadmap to nowhere rebuttal. I think we, we've got a, a we've done a pretty a pretty bang up job in going over all the details and and I'm convinced. Um, I don't know uh, if we've convinced any of our listeners uh, on the other side of the fence. I think. If people are more interested, they should go read uh, Dr. Christopher Clack's uh, paper to get uh, more of the details and also uh, go look at um, Mike and Tim's Roadmap to Nowhere, which is a, a very well done uh, and detailed rebuttal to the uh, roadmap uh, put together by, by Jacobson. Let me interject, Al, and say that the Roadmap to Nowhere, which is viewable on the Internet now, is uh, addressed to the 2015 Jacobson study. Mike and I are about to begin official work on the revision of Roadmap to apply to the 2019 Jacobson study. There, there are two different studies, and Jacobson comes to quite different conclusions in those two studies. Well, the, you know, the new one is kind of same song, second verse, a little bit louder and a whole lot worse. He has less storage. He's down to 12-hour storage. And his solution, like I said, his solution is to wire everything together, which will be done by other people. Not, I mean, it's not part of his plan. And um, just have, like, all the wind and solar farms in the country backing each other up as we go, and everything should be fine, and we have 12-hour storage just to smooth it out. And that's his plan, and I, I, I'm quite frankly shocked 
that people would be sanguine about that. Oh, yeah, we'll just get rid of all fuel and um, we'll just go on ambient natural phenomenon and wire everything together on the fatuous presumption that the wind is always blowing somewhere. So I think uh, I think uh, you've convinced me. Let's go nuclear. <laughs> Twist my rubber arm. It wasn't difficult. Uh, <laughs> if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you'll know. Definitely uh, uh, preaching to the choir here. I think we're reaching the end of our time slot. Is there anything uh, you guys want to hit in terms of uh, advertising your work? You're, you're coming out with a, a book, are you? Yeah, it's a new book. It's almost done. It's called Fear of a Nuclear Planet. And when Tim and I wrote Roadmap to Nowhere, the responses we got back that were negative all centered around a fear of radiation in one degree or another. And so we decided that actually that's the underlying issue that has to be cleared up before you can have a sensible discussion about nuclear versus renewables. And so uh, fearofanuclearplanet.com. We got lucky with that one, like roadmap to nowhere.com. So fearofnuclearplanet.com, and there's a teaser on, on, on that website, and we will have the book out, well, we hope toward the end of the year. Right, Tim? Say yes. <laughs> I, I hope sooner, but, but, but yeah, by the end of the year. Yeah. Great. Well, keep an eye out for that. That's excellent to hear. Yeah, so we want to get both of them, the revision of Roadmap to Nowhere and Fear of a Nuclear Planet out closely together. Because they're kind of companion books. You know, Fear of a Nuclear Planet is actually a, a prequel to Roadmap to Nowhere. It's what you should read first if you're leery about nuclear power. Excellent. Or leery about radiation and all that kind of stuff, meltdowns and all that kind of stuff. So I got one final question for you both uh, before I, I let you go. Um, what's, your, what's your favorite science fiction? You said you're a voracious reader, Mike. What, what do you like? Um... My favorite science fiction, oh, C.J. Shera, um, and also Niven and Pornell on Moat in God's Eye. Ah, It was yeah. just so well written. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. I've read it. Larry Niven and David Pornell, uh, A Moat in God's Eye. I do have that it's, one. It's literature. It's literature. C.J. Shera is literature. Um, so I just, I did the, it's just as fine as any, you know, um, any, any what, what people consider fine literature on the market. Highly recommend it. How about you, Tim? I, I'm I'm reluctant to say that my tastes run to the 19th century <laughs> when it comes to literature, but to keep up with my friend, not, not keep up, to have something to talk about with my friends, I have read a little bit of science fiction. Uh, who is the author of Dune Herbert? I, I, I like his work. Yes, Frank Herbert. Yeah. Frank Herbert. Very good. Lawrence of Arabia on Mars. They're coming out with a new Dune movie, too, so that's really something to look forward to. All right. Well, thank you so much, you guys, for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, look forward to, to seeing your book come out. It's been fun, Al. Yeah, man. Yeah, when the book comes out, yeah, have us on again. We'd love to see you. Thanks a lot. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page, at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.